The text for Pastor John's sermon today is found in Hebrews chapter 8, page 1426 in the uh, Pew Bible in front of you. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Last fall, almost every Sunday morning message and every Wednesday night BITC session was devoted to the question, what does it mean to be the church? We use phrases like doing church. How do you do church? And I want to try to sum up this morning some of the fruit that I think God is bearing from those studies and that focus. Five things that I think the Lord is doing and the last one will take us into about a six-week focus in our Sunday mornings as we try to bring that whole effort to a climax. Number one, I think that the fruit is being born in a heightened sense of the priority of ministering to each other in small groups at Bethlehem. The small group ministry is not an end in itself. Gathering in pockets is not an end in itself. It is a means to the end of unleashing ministry 
so that you individually can find who you are in Christ for others. Why there is grace in you. What the shape of your pipe is as it moves towards others. Small groups are designed for transmitting grace from saint to saint. For meeting other people's needs. Strengthening others' faith. Building up each other's hope. Keeping each other on the narrow way that leads to life. Finding the pace to finish the race. It's ministry. It's eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart, gift to gift. Ministry in the name of God. A heightened sense that that system of small groups should be cultivated, should be furthered, should grow, should become more significant in the life of Bethlehem in the next years. Number two. Our study is bearing fruit in a wider shepherding effort being designed by the elders that will reach out and embrace and fold in all the members of Bethlehem, even the 40% or so who are not in official small groups. Many of those people have spoken to me, and I understand why they are leading their ministry lives in the way they are not part of an official group. I'm not condemning that 40%. I know enough people in that group whose lives are sold out to God and are significantly ministering in ways. But we want a shepherding uh, way at Bethlehem so that those people don't get lost. How easy it is in a church of 1,100 members and 1,200 on Sunday morning for people to just drift away and be lost. And so we want to supplement the small group ministry with another kind of shepherding effort which will somehow put people into touch with leaders once or twice a year in more or less formal way to know how you're doing and to be of help to those people. Number three. That, by the way, is on the front burner of the elders and Lord willing will be in place within about six weeks. Number three. Our study is bearing fruit in a renewed commitment to foster a ministry mindset in all the members of the church and to create an atmosphere where energy for ministry is released. Now, the elders and the ministerial staff do not believe it is our main job to do the work of the ministry. We are to, according to Ephesians 4, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We equip equip. We train, we pray, we motivate, we inspire, we oversee. But it is your calling to dream the dream and do the ministry. For example, when I try to get a a reading on why I exist, what's the point of John Piper's life? Why am I here? The answer that is very, very near the top, if not riding in the top, kind of jumping back and forth into first place, is I exist to cultivate and maintain by God's grace in this church a spirit of hope and joy and possibility and energy that you might find a worthwhile way to live. That you can come every Sunday and stick your torch in my fire and go away and for another six days invest your life in your engagements with your profession, your occupation, your trade for God's glory. I exist to enable ministry. I have visions for how that should be done. At the very center of it is God. God. This is a God issue. To lift up God Sunday after Sunday and say, He's glorious. 
Look at him. That's my main job, I think. But underneath it is the thought that when people see God, when people fall in love with God and fall out of love with the world, they fall in love also with ministry and a radical lifestyle that spins themselves for others. So we as a staff are deeply committed to inspiring, to motivating, to creating an atmosphere of hope where you can find energy to dream and do ministry. If you leave it up to us, this city will not feel anything from this church. If you seek God for a new dream, for how your profession, your occupation, your trade should feel the force of your Christian life, I so deeply feel, because I heard an illustration at the pastor's conference, I'm going to stick this in, I so deeply feel that I, along with many pastors, so often make the mistake of creating the impression that ministry, what really counts in life, is finding something special to do in this body. That's not true. That's important. And hundreds of you ought to find that. But what ought to be happening as I preach and as Sunday school teachers teach and as small groups minister is the release of dreaming and energy for how lawyers do Christian lawyering. And nurses do Christian nursing. And teachers do Christian teaching. And carpenters do Christian carpentering. And if that sounds like a foreign concept, it's because I haven't done my job well. In other words, to be salt and light out there so you don't think, oh, yeah, i got to find a Christian ministry. What could I do? Usher? Or teach? Or work in the nursery? Or And we couldn't live without those things, believe me. But that's not the main thing that the church is called to do. You're called to be Christ out there. So, this third point is... A rising sense of cultivating a mindset of ministry and a release of energy upon the saints to do the work of the ministry. And if you get a dream, I like to say with uh, Carl Lundquist, he, when, when we celebrated his 25th anniversary over Bethel while he was still president, we had these big buttons that said, sure enough, let's do it. That was his trademark. Anybody came to him with a dream, if it wasn't sin, he said, sure enough, let's do it. That's sort of the way I feel. I think that's the way the elders feel. You come to us with a dream. If it's not sin and won't break the bank, we'll say, sure enough, let's do it. You do it, though. Don't ask us to do it. I still got to break some of you of the habit of calling me on the phone or writing me letters to tell me what ministry to do. I I always give it back to you and say, great, that's a great idea. Do it. Number four, our study is bearing fruit in a deepened sense that structure is not the essential problem when we feel weak and short, like, like we have shortcomings in not being outgoing to strangers or not being sensitive to the needs of the body or not being aggressive in evangelism. Now, structure is part of the problem. That's what we were wrestling with last fall, especially in the BITC. Structure is part of the problem, but again and again, people raise their hands in the BITC or come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I really appreciate all this talk about groups and structure and organization and how to get things fixed around here, but I think what we're looking for is not the fruit of right structure, it's the fruit of right spirit, right attitude. All the structure in the world won't create love. 
All the structure in the world won't create vulnerability, won't create compassion, care, risk-taking ventures. Structure just won't do the main thing. It can help by removing some obstacles, but what I have learned as we've studied together and if you've helped me is that our main agenda is a hard agenda, the hard issue here. Whether you talk to somebody after this service who you don't recognize or walk by them is not a structure issue. It's not a name tag issue. It's a heart issue. It's a God issue. Is God satisfying your needs and giving you enough comfort and, and rest and security in His acceptance and love that you can risk some egg on your faces by saying, Hi, my name's John. What's your name? Are you new here? <laughs> no, I've been here 20 years. We all know that's the standard joke. It's been a joke for 10 years at Bethlehem. The standard obstacle. Not a good one. The faith issue. Which means that I'm not thinking in terms, I hope this helps some of you, I'm not thinking in terms, oh good, we've done the church thing for five months. Now, on to something else. That's not the way I'm thinking right now. In seeing that the, the issue is a root issue, it's a faith issue, a heart issue, a love issue, a God issue, therefore it's not something we set behind us. We will keep it there. And there are ways we have in mind to do that, and that leads me to number five. Our time on this issue is bearing fruit in sending us back to the meaning of covenant. Church, covenant, God's covenant. For ten years, twelve and a half really, we've had an ask class for members at this church. I taught it for about eight years. In the last ten years, 900 people have gone through the Ask class. Every one of them have received in their hands a copy of the Church Covenant and the Affirmation of Faith, and were told to read it and agree with it if they want to join the church. In those ten years, never once have we put that Church Covenant in the center of our life, either to teach on it, on Sunday nights, or to preach on it on Sunday mornings, or to use it in a welcoming ceremony for newcomers into this church. Not once. And that's my fault. That's nobody else's fault. And that is a great weakness. The elders, in thinking about this whole issue of being the church, have come up with some ideas that I think are excellent, and I'm so eager to put them into place, of how... To take that church covenant and the meaning of being a covenant people and put it in the center of our lives. For example, what we're going to start doing this spring with new groups of people who are joining the church is periodically put them in the front of the church just like on a baby dedication. Same motif, same amount of time probably out of a Sunday morning service. We'll line them up, 20, 30 people. I'll come down, stand there, make a comment or two about what we're doing in turn, and I will take the church covenant, which I've rewritten into five questions from five paragraphs, and I will ask them the questions, just like I do in the baby dedication. 
And they corporately will say, I do to the church covenant. And we together as a family on Sunday morning will reaffirm in a solemn way our covenant to one another to be church at Bethlehem under Christ and for each other and for the world and for God's glory. So as many times as we need to do that through the year, that's the way we will put the covenant back at the center of our corporate life together. The omission of that in the last years and other forces has, I believe, significantly reduced the biblical significance of what it means to be the church at Bethlehem. Almost none of you, unless you're a very rare person, have lively categories in your brain right now of covenant for what it means to be Bethlehem. When somebody asks you, what's Bethlehem like? Is covenant one of the words that rises to the front? Probably not, because I haven't preached it. I haven't taught it. I've only handed it to new members when they've come and and just kind of left it up to you to do with it what you want. That's a grave shortcoming, I believe, in my ministry in the last decade. So that's one of the ways we'll keep the question that we've been dealing with over the past, past five months on the table in the years to come, Lord willing. Now, what's going to happen now? Sunday morning for the next six weeks is this. I want to start a series this morning on the church covenant. This morning, why why a church covenant? And then on March 7th, Communion Sunday, we will have a Sunday morning service in which the whole service will be structured around a solemn covenant reaffirmation Sunday. Just like at numerous times in the Old Testament, the people came together to reaffirm their commitment to God and to one another and to their calling in the world. Next Sunday, I'll have in the bulletin for you the printed copy of our church covenant as I begin to preach through it. And I hope that by the time we're done, we will have gone a long way to rectifying the shortcomings of these years. They begin this morning on this issue with a definition. Covenant. Covenant is an agreement or mutual obligation contracted deliberately and with solemnity. An agreement or mutual obligation contracted deliberately and with solemnity. Now, there's a problem with that definition right off the bat when you think in terms of God's covenant with man. And it has to do with this mutuality of obligation. There is mutuality between God and His covenant partner. Both come under obligations. But there isn't mutuality in laying down the obligations and determining what the terms of the covenant are. God does not negotiate with us. He doesn't come to us and say, what would you like to do as part of this covenant? And I'll tell you what I'll do. You tell me what you'll do. And if I like what you'll do, I'll do it. And if you like what I do, that is not the way God negotiates a covenant. He doesn't negotiate. God comes to us knowing what's good for us. And we come trusting or obeying or not at all. For example, Psalm 111.9, the psalmist says, God has 
commanded his covenant forever. Holy and terrible is his name. Or Judges 2.20 says, This nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers. So when God makes a covenant, he commands it. And he says, here's what I'll do. Here's what you must do. If you don't do it, you die. God does not negotiate. God commands. Now, the glory, the good news, the beauty and wonder of a covenant between God and man is that there are mutual obligations. We have obligations to believe and obey. And God puts himself under his own oath and obligation. For example, to Noah, he said, I establish my covenant with you and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God obligates himself by his own oath and covenant or to Abraham. I will make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations or to Moses. Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such have not been wrought from the foundation of the earth. So God obligates himself. Or David, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your descendants forever. I will build your throne for all generations. So the glory of the covenant with God is that there are obligations on God's side, just like there are on ours. God commits himself with wonderful, unspeakable promises to act on behalf of his covenant partner. Now, let's go to Hebrews 8 and see the covenants here and how it relates to our covenant with each other at Bethlehem. The reason I choose Hebrews 8 for the text this morning is because the two covenants mentioned here, both of them create a people covenanted together. They're not covenants just with an individual. They are covenants that pull together a reality of, of corporateness. The first one mentioned is the covenant that God made with Israel when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and which constituted them as a nation. And the other one is called the new covenant, which was the one God made with the church when Christ died and sealed the covenant with his blood. This cup is the new covenant in my Blood, Jesus said. The first covenant created Israel. The new covenant creates the church, the new Israel. And it will draw in the old Israel, converted at the last day. Now, what's the difference between these two covenants? That's the thing I want to stress this morning. The difference between this covenant called the old covenant in Second Corinthians and new covenant here is primarily that in the Old Covenant, there was no guarantee of its success. And in the New Covenant, there is. Look at verse 6. Halfway through the verse, it says, Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, why are the promises of the New Covenant better? There were some... Glorious promises in the Old Covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will work for you. I will carry you on eagle's wings. I will give you a land. 
I will put your enemies at your service. I mean, the old covenant promises were staggering. What's better about the new covenant promises? What's better is that included in the new covenant promises are not simply the rewards of covenant keeping, but the power to keep the covenant is guaranteed in the new covenant. Let's read this now so you can see it out of the text. Start at verse 8. In finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. On that day, they did not continue in my covenant. Now, that's the problem with the old covenant. They failed. It was a washout. The old covenant did not carry power. It did not carry Holy Spirit-driven guarantees of its success. It was letter, not spirit, Paul said. But, verse 10, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. He's going to tamper with our minds. I will write my laws upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What's really new about the new covenant is that Christ seals it with his blood and what he purchases with his blood is not just the reward of eternal life, but the fulfillment of the conditions of eternal life, namely faith and holiness. I will write my law on your mind. Put it on your heart. Which means I'm not going to stand back and wait to see what you in the power of the flesh can do in response to my covenant wondering whether or not it will succeed and how many people will be in heaven and whether the world will be evangelized or not. I'm going to become aggressive in this new covenant. I'm moving in on your mind. I'm moving in on your heart. I will put my laws within you, as Ezekiel says in 36:27. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not so much in the terms, the stipulations, the obligations, but in the power, the guarantee, the certification poured out at Pentecost, invested in every one of the elect, namely, God will cause us to walk in his statutes and all those who are Christ's will believe and obey and be holy, without which no one sees the Lord. You and I exist at Bethlehem because of an irresistible force on our lives called the covenant-keeping grace of God. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Nothing, height, depth, things in heaven, things below, things to come, things present, principalities, powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because the new covenant commits God, obligates God, to intrude on my rebellious brain and overcome it. To intrude on this heart and overcome it 
and win. God is not standing back watching His church. He is taking over. He is the head from which it all flows down in power. And He is working to purify and to prepare His bride for His Son. Picture them now for this covenant, this marriage. The Father has a Son and the Father has a bride for His Son. The elect from all the foundation of the world, from all eternity. And the Son. And He's going to marry these two. And when He marries them, when He weds them, the oath that establishes this covenant union of one flesh between Christ and the church is the new covenant sealed by the blood of the Son and containing the guarantee that there will be no divorce. Never. Therein lies, by the way, the infinite sanctity of marriage. Marriage on earth is intended to be a mirror of that blood-bought union. And it is holy beyond our society's imagination. And unbreakable. One of the reasons we don't feel the necessity of the church covenant today, I hadn't for ten years, hadn't felt the necessity to teach on it, preach on it, to put it at the center of our covenant life together. One of the reasons is because we take for granted the existence of local churches. And therefore, since there are a thousand local churches in the Twin Cities, well over a thousand local churches in the greater metropolitan area, We just take for granted they exist, and our job is just to choose one. And it doesn't enter our minds that the question, how did it get to be that way? Take yourself back to the early 1600s in America. Thousands of settlers coming over from the old country. Some of them banded together in churches, most of them in need of establishing churches. And here they are in a new land not peppered with tens of thousands of churches, but people, most of them believers, not gathered in local churches, wondering, what do we do? What do we do? In 1649, John Cotton, Richard Mather, and Ralph Patridge got together under the direction of a larger group to draw up a, quote, model of church government. And here's the way they reason. They reason like this. God wills for his people to gather in visible local churches. In local churches. That was their first assumption. Biblically. Secondly, they said, visible union, the creation of a local visible body of believers, does not become established by faith, by profession of faith, by living together in the same place, or by baptism. Why not? They they reasoned like this. A visible local church is not established by faith because faith is invisible. Secondly, a visible local church is not established by a bare profession of faith of individuals because professing faith does not put you in alignment with one church or another church. You might profess your faith and not be connected to any church. Third, Living together in one place does not establish a church for the saints because atheists and infidels, they said, live together with those believers. That doesn't constitute them as part of the church. So locality didn't do it. Baptism doesn't do it because when you're baptized, 
into Christ, you may not necessarily align yourself immediately with one church or another church. Baptism by itself and in and of itself, as the uh, story of the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, for example, in Acts 8, shows is not sufficient to establish a church. So what did they conclude? What they concluded, and it was the answer of tens of thousands of Baptists and Congregationalists across New England, as it had been earlier in England, as it had been with Anabaptists and others on the Europe, on the European continent. The answer they gave was, a local visible assembly is established by a covenant. A group of people gathering together, making an agreement of mutual obligations to worship God, minister to each other, reach the world, and holding each other accountable, and affirming in a solemn way that we will be that and do that for each other. That's what brings the covenant idea to the fore and makes it so essential here at Bethlehem. Our roots as a covenant people go back into God's covenant with us by which He sovereignly drew us together into the body of Christ and desiring that body to become visible in local expressions, it is necessary that there be some kind of commitment, some kind of mutual accountability, some kind of declaration, you are mine and I am yours and we are together in a body to minister to one another. And therein is the meaning of a church covenant. And I I don't think we understand this nearly as well as we need to, and therefore I'm going to take now five weeks to unpack Bethlehem's church covenant. It's a great old historic covenant. We didn't make it up here. It was there when most of us got here. In fact, probably when almost all of us got here. And it is biblical to the core. It isn't legalistic. It's very broad and general and wonderfully rooted in the Scriptures. And from here on out for the next several weeks, we'll try to get into it and take its biblical roots and expose them so that when we come to a covenant reaffirmation Sunday on March 7th, there will be a profoundly deeper understanding than there is today and a deeper appreciation than there is today for why in the world we have a church covenant. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you that you have made a covenant through the blood of your Son with your church, that you will never turn away from doing us good all the days of our lives and on into eternity that nothing can separate us from Your love in Christ Jesus, that You are our Father in Christ Jesus, that we are righteous in Christ Jesus, that we are accepted in Christ Jesus, that we are holy and loved in Christ Jesus, that we are destined for glory in Christ Jesus, justified and certainly sanctified because You are now writing Your law upon our hearts and putting it into our minds and securing by sovereign grace the success of the new covenant. Oh, fill your people with a sense of stability and joy and confidence and courage and power and hope this week as they walk in this covenant relation to you and each other, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.